Today's reading from the Word of God comes from John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. Please follow along in your own Bibles, on the screen behind me, or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are invited to join Kids Crew through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus and his disciples went, in, went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim, because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a person can only receive what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. My name is Bryn. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm a different Bryn than the one who is married to Molly Clark. Um, but Brent Clark and I actually have a ton in common. It's kind of cool. Anyway, um, really glad to be with you this morning. We like to open our time uh, before we go into the scripture with just a, a, a moment of quiet to calm our hearts before the Lord, to invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us through God's word. And so I want to invite us to do that for a minute. Uh, just kind of think about the things that you have on your heart and mind today and offer them to God to speak to you directly to those places. And I will open us with a word of prayer in a minute. God, this morning we invite ourselves or we offer ourselves to you we thank you that you have invited us into your presence and that we have the opportunity to worship you through studying your word through song through creativity through serving our foster families and our adoptive families god we thank you for the ways that you teach us and challenge us and change us and so we ask this morning that you would open us up to be changed by you and that this morning, we would learn to look a little bit more like who you are. We love you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to open this morning with a story. It was my sophomore year in high school. Do we have any high school sophomores here? Oh, nice. Sophomore year is kind of the best. You are not a freshman anymore, so you're not scared of everything all the time. You kind of get how high school works. You are not a junior, so you don't have to worry about SATs and ACTs and which colleges to visit. And you're not a senior. You don't have to worry about college applications or applying for a job or moving away from home for the first time. You're just kind of living the dream sophomore year. And my sophomore year was starting out great. Everything was coming up Bryn. I had an awesome friend group. Some of them already had their driver's licenses. I had a lot more independence. I had a later curfew. And the cute boy in Algebra 2 was starting to pay attention to me. And then it happened. And by it happened, I mean she happened. Adrian. Adrian 
transferred in halfway through sophomore year with all the fanfare that new high school girls often have. She was beautiful and she was interesting and she looked good in everything that she wore. She had transferred in from a private performing arts high school that was a feeder school for future Hollywood stars. So she was super talented. She could own a stage with her singing voice and she was rich. She had the coolest Sweet 16 party that any of us had ever been to. It was on a private yacht. There was unlimited Polynesian food and a bartender who would give us all the diet Sprite that we wanted. This party was off the hook. And to make it even worse, Adrian was a Christian. So I couldn't even be like, well, she's perfect in every way, but at least I'm a Christian, which is usually what I told myself when high school girls seemed cooler than me. She even had Jesus. <laughs> I'm not proud to admit that. <laughs> but it's true. We're honest here, right? So Adrienne never went on to become a famous actress. Yes. But she did get a master's degree from a prestigious university, and she advocates for under-resourced uh, people groups as a social activist. She was witty. She was kind. And everyone liked her. Adrienne was the worst. <laughs> okay, she wasn't the worst. She was kind of awesome, and everyone liked her for a reason. And so did the cute boy in Algebra 2. Have you ever known someone like that? Someone who just seems to have it all together? And by it all, I mean the things that you wish that you had all together? The looks, the, the charm, the success, the talent, the attention, the family, the whatever it is that you value? Adrian and I did become friends, but from day one in our friendship, I noticed something deep in myself that I didn't like, but I just couldn't shake. Envy. Envy. Envy is one of the worst feelings in the world. It's one of the seven deadly sins, and if you think about it, all of the other seven deadly sins can feel a little bit fun, like just for a second. But it's been said that envy is the only one that is never any fun at all. Envy targets our center. It targets our identity. It targets our core, our stability, the foundation that holds everything else up. The writer of Proverbs put it this way. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Envy rots the bones. It rots us from the inside out. It gnaws away at our foundation, our sense of self, until we have nothing propping us up anymore. Envy is painful. It targets our, our core. And yet for most of us, it's also pretty familiar. It doesn't matter how old you are, where you're from, your job or your gender, at some point or another, envy is the rotting skeleton in all of our closets. So what is envy? Well, to wrap our minds around what envy is, we'll talk about what envy is not. So we kind of use the words envy, jealousy, and coveting interchangeably in the English language, but they are not the same thing. So first, envy is not jealousy. Jealousy is about protecting something that is rightfully ours, something that we already have. It's about keeping what I love safe from harm or from being stolen. It's the feeling that I should rightfully have if another woman hits on my husband. 
It's the feeling that God rightfully feels when we worship other things besides God. Jealousy is about protecting what we have. It's about protecting what we love. It's about restoring the right relationship always. Envy is not that. Envy is about getting something that I don't have. It's about something that you have. It's about wanting something that someone else has. So envy is not jealousy. Envy is also not coveting. Like envy, coveting is about wanting something that I don't have, but when I covet, I want what you have too. So if I covet your amazing dress, I, I, it means that I also want the dress. It means I, I want us both to have the dress. If I covet your public speaking skills, I would be happy for both of us to be fantastic public speakers. But envy, envy is not that. When I envy, I want what you have, but I also don't want you to have it. It's not about having that one too. It's about you not having it. So envy is not coveting. Envy means wanting something that someone else has so that they don't have it and I do. The jealous person delights in protecting what is rightfully theirs and the coveting person delights in acquiring the thing itself. But when we envy, it doesn't just give us delight to obtain a greater good. When we envy, we delight that our rival's good is taken away even, even if I don't get it as a result. If I can't have it, I would rather that neither of us have it. It's that moment when we delight in the fact that they look just a little bit worse in their bathing suit this year than they did last year. Or that their awesome car has a ding in it now. I was literally listening to another pastor's sermon on Envy, a pastor who is a friend of mine. And as I was listening, I started thinking about how articulate he sounded when he was talking about Envy. And, and I wish that I could sound that articulate when I was talking about Envy. And I got a little twinge of satisfaction when he stumbled over his words. Twice. Envy. If I'm not feeling articulate, then I would rather that neither of us did. Envy is painful. Envy rots our core, and it is a tale as old as time. So we are back in the Gospel of John. If you put your Bibles away, I'd invite you to open them back up to chapter 3, to the chapter that Josh read for us a few minutes ago. Last week we took a, a look at Nicodemus, and this week we're going to take a look at John the Baptist. So verse 22, it says this. Then Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem and went into the Judean countryside. Jesus spent some time with them there, baptizing people. Okay, so Jesus and his disciples have left the city and they're baptizing people in the Judean countryside. And this is important because a little ways away, Jesus's cousin, John, John the Baptist, was also baptizing people. Verse 23 says this, it says, at this time, John the Baptist was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water there and people kept coming to him for baptism. A debate broke out between John's disciples and a certain Jew over ceremonial cleansing. So John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one that you identified as the Christ is also baptizing people and everybody is going to him instead of coming to us. It's like someone saying, hey, pastor, everyone is going to that other church instead of going to our church. What are we going to do about that? Because in, our, in that world, one person's success, even among rabbis, it meant another person's failure. 
So a little background on that. The, the culture in that day was governed by something called the law of limited good. We've talked about this before. And in our culture, we might call it a scarcity mindset. So you might have heard that term, a scarcity mindset. The law of limited good or a scarcity mindset. It's this idea that there is never enough goodness to go around for everybody. Everything is scarce. Everything is finite. Everything is in limited supply. So that meant, obviously, you'd go to the market and there's only so many olives that you could buy or goats or wine. Everything that you could buy was limited. But things that you couldn't buy were limited too. Things like justice and power, safety, honor, all of it was finite. So no matter what you could think of, there was always only so much of it to go around. And so naturally, people in Jesus' culture, they lived in a world of constant competition, of constantly keeping score, because if your neighbor is doing well at something, then that means that you are doing worse, and that depletes the supply of whatever it is that you want. It was like there's this big vat of goodness floating around, and if your sister somehow got some of it, then there was a little bit less goodness for you. It was a, a culture of constant scorekeeping, of constantly sizing each other up, of challenging each other's claims to success. So in our story today, that is exactly what's happening with John's disciples. If Jesus is doing well, then that means John must be doing worse. And eventually, well, that could put John out of business. That means that John's disciples could be out of a job. It wasn't that John's disciples were concerned about running out of water to baptize people in or about running out of people to baptize. John's disciples were concerned about running out of success, about running out of this limited good. They were concerned that if people were flocking to Jesus and his disciples, then that meant that Jesus and his disciples were doing a little bit better and by consequence that John and his disciples were doing a little bit worse. That's how it worked in that world. And it's how it works in ours. We live in a comparative culture, too. We also live in a culture of limited good. It's not enough for both of us to be loved. I must be more loved. I must be more attractive, more successful, more interesting, more insightful than you are. Because being those things, having those things, doing those things, they make me feel worthy. They make me feel wanted. They make me feel like I matter in the world. Because here's the thing. If I envy an object that you have, it's never about the object itself, right? Envy is about whatever that object represents for me. The internal qualities that I wish that I had, the things that I value that I think will make me worthy. Popularity, honor, standing, sex appeal. If I do envy an inanimate thing, it's because of whatever that object symbolizes. I don't really envy the car. I envy the supposed superiority of the person driving it. I don't really envy your speaking ability. I, I envy the confidence that you're displaying through it. Envy isn't about the object or the intangible thing. It's never about the object or the intangible thing. It's about what that object represents for me. The grace, the charm, and the fact that I don't have it. It makes me aware of all the ways that you are worthy and all the ways that I feel unworthy. There's this interesting pattern, too, right, to the way that we 
typically envy. We rarely envy those who are really far removed from our lifestyles. We don't often envy those who are vastly more talented than we are or vastly more successful than we are. We envy people who are just like us, only a little bit better. We envy those in our life stage, in our career path, in our neighborhood. We envy the guy in the Judean countryside who's baptizing people just like we are, but who's doing it a little bit better and who's getting a little more attention doing it. And it rots our bones. It rots our sense of self. It rots the fullness and the stability that we might have had if we never started comparing in the first place. It makes us aware of all those things that we lack internally, and then it hollows out our core even more. And the irony is that subtly, gradually, before we even know what's happening, envy ends up eroding the very thing that would give us stability when we're confronted with what we already lack. It steals our identity, it steals our foundation, our sense of self that would otherwise hold us up when someone else seems superior. It gnaws at the very thing that would make us secure enough not to envy the next time. If my core foundation is already rotting, it doesn't stand a chance the next time that I see someone who seems better than me. And what happens over time is that eventually what's eroding my insides starts to erode my outsides too. My, my rotten bones, it starts to erode my relationships, my outlook on the world, the way I, I see you and what you have, even the way that I see God. It might seem innocent at first. We might justify our envy by thinking of the thing that, that they don't have that we do. It makes us feel a little bit better ourself, about ourselves for just a second. We tell ourselves that even though she got the career that we wanted, she totally compromised her integrity to get it, and we would never do that. Even though he has a perfect physique and he barely has to work at it, he's a dingbat. <laughs> Unlike our witty and intelligent selves, at least I'm a Christian. And we start to distract ourselves from what we lack by taking pleasure in what they lack. We start to look for the ways that they might fail. Maybe we even help that process along. We, we whisper, we criticize, we undermine. Envy, at its worst, it rots our bones, and then it starts to rot our relationships, too. Jesus said to love our neighbors as ourselves, but envy doesn't let us do either one. Envy directly undercuts any chance that we have of loving our neighbor because it undercuts any chance that we have of loving ourselves. I can't envy you and also love you. I can't love myself well and also envy you. Envy is a game that we lose even if we eventually win because to win at envy is to destroy all hope of love. Love of myself, love of my neighbor, love of God. Love, the very thing that our bones are craving in the first place. So how does John the Baptist respond to his disciples? He says this, John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River the one you identified as the Christ is also baptizing people and everybody is going to him instead of coming to us. And John replied, no one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you. I am not the Christ. I am only here to prepare the way for him. I am not the Christ. John stops the cycle of envy at its core. He knows who he is. 
and he knows who Christ is. And the difference? It doesn't threaten him. John was not afraid of that truth, that he was not the Christ. He was never intended to be. He had his own role to play, and it was a role that he took on with great joy. It says this, it is the bridegroom, this is what John continues saying, he says, it is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater. I must become less. John knew his role, and he identified himself correctly. I am not the Christ. He was aware of his lack, but it didn't pick away at his sense of self-worth. He let himself be defined by Christ's worthiness instead. And because of this deep sense of being loved, John could look at Jesus not with envy, but with joy at who he was. And this statement, it would have been completely countercultural in every way in that world. That when faced with someone else's success, John would not feel threatened in his own, but he would take great delight in the greatness of his friend. There was this interesting line at the beginning of the story. We'll get back at verse 23. It says, At this time, John the Baptist was baptizing at Anon near Salim, or Salem, we're near Salem. <laughs> Different one. Because there was plenty of water there. Because there was plenty of water there. John refuses to buy into this idea of limited good. There was plenty of water for them both. There's plenty of work, plenty of gifts, plenty of mission. John was secure in his core of what he had been called to do. So rather than being threatened when faced with his own lack, John names it and he cherishes it and he celebrates the success of Jesus all the more. John didn't have to compete with Jesus for worth because deep in his bones, he knows his worth already. And that's good news for us in Christ. The good news is that regardless of what you have, or regardless of what you lack, you are infinitely loved already. Though you are imperfect, though you are incomplete, God has acted in a way that has embraced you anyway. I love what St. Augustine said. He said, in loving me, in loving me, God has made me lovable. And nothing that, that she has or, or he has or that you don't have, nothing, nothing in all of creation can ever rot that love for you. And whether or not you believe it right now, whether or not you have let it sink into your bones, it is there for you. It won't change. And it can make you whole. John already knew that Jesus was the one to be celebrated. His life wasn't about himself. It was about the name of Christ. And when he pointed, to, when he named his true value as pointing towards Jesus, it took away all of the need to prove the name of John. John was not the Christ. And neither are we. Thank God. Because one day, a few years later, this man Jesus, who, this person who could have been John's rival, who really was the greatest, the one who had the life that everyone wanted, he emptied himself. On the cross, Jesus became less so that we could become great. And it, he lay in a tomb, the place where, where bones go to rot. And then three days later, he rose again with peace in his heart. 
and life in his body so we could live his life. Jesus never said to anybody, I want your life. To all those who envy, he said, here, take mine. And he conquered our envy by pouring out his love for you and for me so that we could have life, life, not, not empty, not hollow, not rotting away bones, but life, life to the full. Getting out from under our envy or our competitive spirits, it requires us to work from this new, unconditionally loved vision of who we are in Christ. It means embracing the fact that though we lack, Christ has made us sufficient. That is done. It is finished. In him, we are already offered the best life there is. If we want to overcome envy in our lives, the only answer, the only answer is that deep in our bones, Christ must become greater and we must become less. And the good news is that when I can approach the world from this mindset, when, when the worthiness of Christ seeps deep into my bones and it rebuilds my entire foundation from the inside out, when his sense of self can give me my sense of self, then I'm, I'm free to look at you, not with envy, but with admiration for the ways that God has made you, you. I can see you not as a rival, but as an inspiration to become all that God has intended me to be because my core is no longer at stake. There is plenty of water in Anon. There are plenty of resources in the world for, for you to be gifted and for me to be gifted in our own time and in our own way. So here's a picture of what that has looked like for me. A few weeks ago, I mentioned that I used to work at a church in Atlanta. And almost every time that I mentioned that I worked at a church in Atlanta, someone comes up to me afterwards and asks, oh, was it Buckhead Church? Has anyone heard of Buckhead Church? Buckhead Church is famous in certain circles for its famous pastor, Andy Stanley. And Andy Stanley is a pastor that I really admire and respect, and his church is doing amazing things. But no, I did not work at Buckhead Church. I worked for a church across the street from Buckhead Church. And the way that we interacted with Buckhead Church was competitive. Curiously enough, they were not competing back. <laughs> they barely knew that we even existed. But we felt this rivalry with Buckhead Church. We knew that they had a bigger name than we did. And rather than celebrating their success for God's kingdom, a lot of us secretly and sometimes not so secretly wished that people would leave their church and come to ours because they thought our church was cooler. Pastors are not always the most spiritually mature people in the world. Fast forward to 2015. I've moved here. We have planted our church. I now work at this church. And I get an email from Bobby Warrenberg, who is the pastor of North Shore Community Baptist Church, and he asked if we could get together for lunch. And he pitched this vision to me that all the pastors and of all the churches on the North Shore set aside any theological differences that we had, any competitive tendencies that we might have, and start working together as one church to support each other and do things together. I had never seen that done before. But a few of us pastors got together and we explored the idea, and then a few more joined us. And seven years later, there are 45 churches that are working in a collaborative relationship that we call the North Shore Gospel Partnership. Now, we disagree on a whole host of issues. We do things differently in a lot of ways. And in fact, some of them don't even ultimately believe that I should be a pastor because I'm female. And it could be very easy for me, for a pastor like me who has a competitive streak, to feel competitive with these pastors and their churches too. To, to feel like I need to prove myself.
But that is not the culture that Pastor Bobby wanted to build in us or has built in us. Instead, we have developed deep friendships. We support each other. We pray for each other. We share resources and ministries and ideas with each other. We host events and ministry partnerships together. If anyone ever tries to leave one of our churches to go to another church, we, we talk to each other to see if that's a broken relationship that we can help repair. Right now, we're even dreaming about planting a church together in Swampscott in a few years and sending members from all of our churches to go and help start it. We celebrate each other's wins as wins for the kingdom of God. We believe that we are better together, and our role is not to proclaim the name of our churches, but together to proclaim the name of Christ. I was in our church archives a few years ago, and I found a note written by the pastor of Dane Street Church that was written 100 years ago, and he described his relationship with other local pastors, and it sounded like he could be talking about the North Shore Gospel Partnership. He said, our relations with our neighboring churches have been delightful. Unique is the goodwill among the churches of this city, where there exists a wholesome rivalry, perfect loyalty to denominational interests, and an emphatic heralding of distinctive convictions. But coupled with these, a friendship, which banishes envy, bitterness, and every vestige of hostility. We are one body, but we are very definitely different members, with no desire for uniformity. Very delightful is the kinship among us. There is plenty of water in Anon. So maybe you're thinking, well, that's great for you and those other pastors. Sounds like a feel-goodery over there in pastor land. But that's not how I feel about the people in my life. Am I just supposed to celebrate them even if I don't mean it? And the answer is, yeah. C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said, do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone you will presently come to love them. If you struggle with belief, act like you believe until you actually do. And the reality is that if you point out the success of those who are actually successful, whether or not you want to, you aren't being insincere. You're being honest. Does your friend have a really great head of hair? Tell him. If he doesn't, you're probably not envying him in the first place. Is your boss a truly gifted leader? Pastor Ethan, I want you to listen to this part. Okay? Is your boss, like, truly gifted? Tell her. Tell her all the things that you admire about her, and then you'll stop envying her so much. When you shake hands with the parent whose, whose kid made the team and yours didn't, you are defeating envy at its core. When you send an affirming email to your colleague and CC the whole team, you are protecting your bones. I like how Pastor Andy Stanley from Buckhead Church said it. He said, it's much easier to behave your way into a new way of thinking than to think your way into a new way of behaving. Don't wait until you feel like celebrating. Celebrate until you feel like it. So a few weeks ago, one of my friends got really good news. And I'll be honest, when I first heard the news, I wished for a second that it was my good news. And as I heard my friend talking about it with other friends, I felt it deep in my core, subtly, so small that I might not have even noticed it at first, envy, rotting my bones. But I happened to be planning a sermon on envy at the time, so I knew what to do. <laughs> rather than undercutting my friend's good news with a, a snide remark, which I might have done, rather than beat myself up for what I was lacking, which I might have done, I picked up a fancy coffee for her, and we celebrated the good news together instead. 
And within a, a few minutes, the envy that I might have let erode my well-being. It turned into gratitude deep in my bones for my friend's joy instead. To guard our bones against envy, we have to celebrate the success, the size, the influence, the affluence of those that we might otherwise have envied. We need to go out of our way to congratulate who they are and what they have been blessed with. The times when we are most prone to envy are exactly the times when we benefit most by celebrating loudly who they are until we actually mean it. And what happens over time is that when I'm celebrating the good in you, I become more and more aware of the good that God is doing in me. I become more at peace with who I am and with who you are and with who Christ is. He must become greater. We must become less. Let's pray. God, you are the one that we worship. And so often we forget the value that you have given to us in Christ. So we pray that this morning you would teach us more and more about our worthiness because of your worthiness. We pray that we would see ourselves in light of who you are. And God, those people that come to mind that we are prone to envy, we ask that you would be with them too. That you would support them, that you would love them, and that through us they might experience your love. And that through loving them, we might experience your love too. We do love you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.